If you would, please take your Bibles out and turn them over to the book of Jude. We began a study there last Sunday, and we resumed that study this Sunday. I was having uh, lunch with a pastor friend of mine on Thursday, and he said, man, you're really brave jumping right from Daniel to Jude. I said, either brave or dumb. And um, he chuckled. And so, because in today's paragraph, it is unavoidable. In today's paragraph that we are looking at, this is some of the most complex stuff in the New Testament because of the history and the mystery, if I can use those two words, the history of it and what we do know, what we don't know, and how mysterious it is that Jude quotes from sources that are hard to pin down or even that are lost to us. But this is the beauty. This is the beauty of Scripture and truth. Truth is truth, and God's truth is true. And it's beautiful when we see it in other places and we can bring it into the fold and claim truth for Christ and claim the truth of Christ and proclaim it to the world and say what you think is this, this is really the truth of Christ. And I love, in essence, I really like that Jude has kind of have done that. He's captured stories and ideas and themes and truths from other places and he's brought them into the fold of God to us so that now as we read Jude, as we consider Jude, as we chew on Jude, we are chewing on the precious truth and bread of Christ. And that's such an encouragement to me this week. This is a hard paragraph. It is tough sledding. But it is so good to be reminded that sin in the world, God sees it. That wickedness, even when it comes up out of the church, God sees it and he has a plan for it. Now, ultimately, the wickedness of the church has been laid on Christ and we've been rescued by the cross. But beloved of God, because of sin at work in the world, we still have to stand firm we still have to live guarded. We still have to walk uprightly and choose holiness day by day. But here's the beauty. This is what the gospel actually does for us. The gospel that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. See, the gospel says, rise up as a new creature and choose holiness day by day because in Christ now you can. Before Christ, you could not and would not. Because you were dead, we, let me put myself in here, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but by the blood of Christ, we can stand against wickedness and holiness. Why am I telling you all this on the front end? Because we are dealing with wickedness in the church this morning in Jude, and we are seeing what happens. We are seeing God's prescription and God's response to that. So without further delay, let us turn our attention now to the book of Jude. This morning, we're going to read Jude Uh, verses 5 to 16. So, beloved of God, this is God's infallible word. Now, I want to remind you, although once you fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah And the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. 
Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. That is quite a bit. So in the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, we, we know this is a difficult paragraph, and yet it's in Your Word, and as Richard just prayed, it is useful for training in righteousness. I pray that our hearts would be open to receive this morning. I pray that our minds would be captured by the truth of Christ and so that our lives would emit the aroma of Christ to all who are around us. Oh, Lord, may it be so. In your name we pray. Amen. I know we've heard it before. We probably hear it often. But one of those phrases that kind of makes me cringe every time I hear it, whether it's through Disney or whether it's from a song or whether it's some form of art or from somewhere else, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. We hear it so often. And there, there is an assumption in that statement that is so wrong and misguided because the assumption in the statement of just follow your heart is that the heart is the center of dreams and only good comes from there. If you're following your heart, it can only be good. Well, I've seen people shipwreck their lives following their heart and they wake up one day and say, that was the worst idea ever. I have followed my heart a few times and didn't work out so well myself. And so when we think about follow your heart, it's terrible advice because it's so terribly mistaken. The heart's capacity to devise wickedness is unparalleled. There is nothing that can devise more wickedness than the human heart. And if we think about the unconverted heart, well, it is desperately wicked, depraved, given to evil. And those of us who are converted, who have converted hearts, we understand we constantly have to scrutinize it then, still, to say, is my heart really aligning with the Lord? And so rather than follow our hearts, perhaps we should follow the Spirit as He leads us by the Word of God. In fact, not perhaps, but that's what should happen because the Spirit guides us in all truth. He is a comforter, but He is also a guide. He is the one leading us in the direction that we need to go. So we don't need to follow our hearts. We need to constantly ask Christ to renew our hearts and thank God that we, if we are in Christ, that we have new hearts, but live by the Word of God as the Spirit leads. Jude gave the reason for this letter earlier. He says, I found it necessary in verse 3 to write you, appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, he had wanted to write another letter, but now he's compelled to write this 
letter because false teachers had slipped in. And so the remainder of this letter, all that we just read and beyond, he's exerting, he's exhorting the church about the dangers of false teaching and false teachers. And it's poignant and timely. And I was talking to Richard this earlier this week, and I was just kind of commenting or chuckling how uncreative humans are of what they're doing, these false teachers are doing in Jews' day, it's exactly what false teachers are doing in our day. They haven't changed their tactics and style. Why is the Word of God contemporary for every generation? Because it understands human beings, and it understands how error begins, and it understands the primary ways where error gets its way into the church or into places of truth. And so, we're looking at this, and, and it, this is poignant and, and valuable for us as we have to evaluate our own lives and our own churches that we attend. Scripture takes truth very seriously. Scripture takes truth supremely seriously. You know why? Because the smallest deviations from truth will lead to shipwrecks. The smallest deviations from truth will lead to shipwrecks. Those who subvert Christianity they do so knowing the ways in which they can get into the human heart and begin to appeal to the flesh in us. But it's funny. It's interesting. What, the, what, the, what is it always happens? It always happens this way, and I'm using always quite literally. Question God's sexual ethic, and they rebrand Jesus in some way. That's exactly what happens. It happens every time. It was happening in Jude's day. It happens in 2022. We begin to question what God has prescribed by saying, this will sound very familiar. Did God really say? That's also a tried and true attack. And then they'll begin to speak of Jesus as a great teacher, a good moral example, somebody that we should follow, somebody who just loved, and that's all he did. He did love. In fact, he loved to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know why? Because he looked into the human heart and said, there's no hope for it if I don't do this. And so he gave. He gave himself to deal with the very things that these false people want to bring back into God's house and say, this is okay. Well, beloved, this is why we have to stand on and for truth, because what we're looking at here is not okay. It wasn't okay then, and it's not okay now. So yes, we're called to contend. Now, just on a technical side here, I was going to send over a graph, but I couldn't find one that would be legible to all of you. So I'll just, you'll just have to take my word for it. On close inspection, there is a great similarity between Jude and Second Peter. A lot of similar ideas, a lot of verses that are very similar. And this is what some people want to do. So some people want to say, okay, well, clearly... One of them copied the other. And since one of them copied the other, neither have value, and people try to downplay the authority of both Second Peter and Jude. Well, if God is true and every man a liar, and we accept the authority of Scripture, then we can look at Jude and say God wanted it in His Word, and He wanted us to read it right now today. He is sovereign. Because when you look, do a closer inspection, you can see that what some people often try to say, well, they're identical. They're not identical. They're different. But you know what this tells me? That the problem that Jude addressed was so prolific in the early church that Peter felt compelled to write to. Oh, and by the way, 
Paul felt compelled to write to, to the Corinthian church to deal in places and to the Galatian church where, I mean, if you look at the epistles of the New Testament, you are looking at constantly they are trying to deal with error because it had all been creeping in. So to say, well, Judas, kind of like Second uh, Peter, therefore, it's probably not inspired or it shouldn't be in the Bible, is hogwash because it's bringing to bear God's truth to God's church so that we can stand firm. So, Peter and Jude were eager for the church to contend for the truth and guard against what is false. And beloved, I'm eager for myself to do that, and I'm eager for you to do it. I'm eager for us to do it together. It's the fight of our time, and it'll be the fight of every Christian's time until Jesus comes back and declares full and final victory. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see. It's this. The judgment of God on the wicked and false is sure. That the judgment of God on the wicked and false is sure. So what Jude is doing is, while it's <laughs> depressing is not the right word, well, it's, it's a hard read to read those verses because they are so intense. There is a hope in there because what he's doing, he's saying, the faults are with us. And in a sense, what I'll say, the faults are with us and they'll always be with us. But what Jude is reminding us is, hey, this is a warning to those who would attempt to be faults be sobered by this, and an assurance to those who live in the midst of them that they have an end, that they will not stand forever, and falsehood doesn't stand, it dies. Truth stands forever, because God is truth, and He is eternal. And so, we have to keep in mind when we observe wickedness around us that wickedness is finite, and guess what? Wickedness is finite, which means it is not eternal, and it must submit itself to God. God will judge wickedness. God will bring judgment to the wicked. God will eradicate what is defiled and evil and ugly. And so when we're looking here, this, the way they'll break down this paragraph is in kind of three little sections. Verses 5, 6, and 7, what Jude is doing is he's giving us some examples from the Old Testament, right? So he's given three examples from the Old Testament and the Jewish traditions that would have been very familiar to him, but also his audience. So he says here in verse 5, now I want to remind you, so the idea is, he says, although you once fully knew it, he is not telling them anything that they don't know in the, in the sense that I'm not telling you this morning probably anything that you don't know. What he's doing is he's saying, if we're going to contend for the truth, <laughs> we need to remind each other again and again and again what is true, what is true, and how do we proclaim that? How do we stand on that? So they know the truth, but he's reminding them. And here, right out of the gate, we have an issue. He says, now, you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land. Now, some Bibles read the Lord who saved a people out of the land because some manuscripts have the Lord and some manuscripts have Jesus. I'm sorry to get super technical with you, but when it comes to text criticism, this is important. Text criticism is the study of the manuscripts. The oldest manuscripts had the name Jesus in there, and some newer ones have the Lord. Well, Brad, are, can we, are we saying that the Bible is not trustworthy? Absolutely not. Let me tell you why. Because when, in verse 4, whether, whether the manuscript says Jesus or Lord, we know who it is, who Jude intends. Deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
when Jude mentions Lord in Jude, he is talking about Jesus Christ. And he is bringing, he's bringing this to bear so that Jesus in Yahweh was at work in the Old Testament. He's bringing to bear Trinitarian theology and saying, Jesus, whom we now worship, is one with the Father, and He was with the Father in the deliverance of the people of Egypt. Kind of similar when, when um, Paul speaks of Jesus being the rock that was struck in the wilderness. So what they're doing is they're tying Jesus, New Testament Messiah, back to the Old Testament, bringing unity to the two Testaments. But it's sobering here because, look, this is a, a helpful thing. Jesus saved them, del- delivered them out of the land of Egypt, and then afterward destroyed those who did not believe. If you remember, when the Israelites came out of um, Egypt, 12 spies were sent into the land, and tw- tw- 10 spies came back and said, we can't take it, and two came back and said, we should take it, the Lord is with us. And that generation perished and never saw the land. God punished them for their lack of belief. That's a theme through Scripture. We've already dealt with it in Jude, that the primary sin that human beings commit is the, the lack of belief or unbelief because unbelief fuels all sorts of things. When I don't truly believe, the gates fling open and I can live my life as I see fit, which is why people don't want to believe. But that's another sermon. But he gives them this, this, he's reminding them of this this magnificent event in the Old Testament and said, oh, by the way, but remember, those who did not believe were judged. So that's one example. When we think about wickedness, it has very costly consequences. People will indulge it for a season or they'll do it to stay culturally relevant, (laughs) They approve what is evil and speak ill of what is good. But, beloved, those things have consequences, and they're costly. In fact, the consequences are separation from God. Wickedness and the Lord cannot stand together. That is why Christ had to take our sin on Himself and make us new creatures. And so, we are called to faithfulness. Does that mean we're going to stumble Yeah, we will, and we'll stumble a lot. The righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up. It's not great to stumble, but it's also not the end of the line either because we have a gracious God who longs to be gracious to us. So we should not be okay with wickedness. We should not approve wickedness. We should not indulge wickedness. We should bring grace and truth to bear where wickedness is a foot or a flame. He gives us a second example in verse 6. Let me say something about the Jesus Lord thing. Usually in text criticism, the maxim is the harder the reading, usually the more, more apt it is to be true. So it is a hard reading to read as Jesus saved them from Egypt, so that seems more likely that it is true that Jude meant that, but because of his connection to the word Lord, we know that. His next example is equally difficult because he says, and the angels that did not stay within their own position of authority in verse 6, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day, the judgment of the great day. Now, there are two primary ways that people understand this. 
One way is to look at this as the demonic host who fell with Satan from glory, and now they are being held in eternal chains for the judgment of Christ. That is one. Another way, the other primary way that people take this, is it's a reference to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, where the sons of God had improper relationships with human women, and they stood under condemnation for that. Now, from the text itself, it's impossible to know which one of those it is. There is no textual clues that tell you, undoubtedly, this is what he means. But to know which story it, it goes with doesn't alter the point. It doesn't change the point that these angels had defiled themselves in some way, had stepped away from God's authority in some way, and so they are held in judgment. Whether it's the Genesis 6 passage or whether it's demonic hosts, they stand under the judgment of God. But there's a play on words here in the Greek that the ESV misses. Literally, in verse 6, it says, And the angels who did not keep to their own domain, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains. So the angels who could not keep proper authority, the angels who could not keep, into, keep in step with the will of the Lord, he now has kept them for judgment. It's a powerful play on words, and you will see this juxtaposition throughout Jude, because he's already said in verse 1, who are called beloved in God the Father, and remember, kept for Jesus Christ. These angels didn't keep to God's will. Now they are kept for judgment. This is a beautiful thing that we are kept for Christ. We are preserved for and in Christ. And all that is wicked is left to judgment. So the righteous are preserved and the wicked are imprisoned. It's a powerful statement. It's a powerful truth. And it's got to bring encouragement to your hearts. If you're like me, you get discouraged in what you see in yourself and what you see all around you. And there's gotta, we've got to have times where we're reminded, I am kept for Christ if I am in Him. And He is keeping me and will keep me for all eternity. I am preserved. Oh, we need to constantly nourish our hearts with those truths. Third example just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah judged for her perversion. We know the story. They knew it well. We know it well. We understand why Sodom and Gomorrah fell under the judgment of God, and he brings it up here for their unnatural desires, which is a good translation of that, but um, and their immorality. And he, he just says it outright. This is it. Now, why the question we have to ask that we have to ask of the text is why does he use that example? Is he simply just saying God judges wickedness, or is he saying something more deep? I think he's actually saying something a little more deep, as a lot of commentators agree, that it, Jude brings this up precisely because he's seeing some of the same issues in his own church. And he is looking at these false teachers and these people who are believing their teaching and say, look, we know what happened when cities were doing this. God brought destruction on them. Why would we think that we can bring this into the church and it's okay? There's some churches in our world today that need to be asking the same question. 
So it becomes so black and white, crystal clear right here for us that God, or Judas rather, is saying God sees what's going on and He will bring judgment. He judges wickedness because He is a completely righteous God. Now, of course, a lot of people find this very unpalatable. I mean, how could a loving God do such a thing? Because they forget or either choose to not remember that He is holy and righteous. And His righteousness will not endure wickedness. He cannot. So why does Jude use these three examples? Well, he's about to tie these three things. You'll see this proliferation of uh, like, yet in like manner these people. And then, but these people blaspheme. And woe to them, they are hidden reefs. So he's getting ready to say, tie the heart's an end of these teachers back to these three examples. That's exactly what he's doing here. So in verses 8 to uh, 13, he's showing us the false teachers. He's showing us why they're false, by what they teach and how they live. And so, you know, there are just some things. There are just some things when you hear it as Christians, and we know that it doesn't square with the Word of God. We know immediately either this person is seriously mistaken, confused, or false. Why do we contend for truth? Because if someone is confused, they just need to be corrected. But if someone is false, they need to be challenged. And you don't have to have a seminary degree to challenge what is false. Two questions in your back pocket. What do you mean by that, and how did you come to that conclusion? That's a great way to start. And then say, well, right here in Jude, it says this. It sounds different than what you're saying. I, I think I mentioned this last Sunday, and it, it bears repeating there. I heard a man give a 45-minute lecture on how we've, under, we've misunderstood Romans 1 and the Genesis, Sodom, and Gomorrah passages, how we've misunderstood any mention of uh, sexual immorality in the, in the New Testament or Old Testament because those are not compensating for people who want to be in a relationship together and who genuinely love each other. It was the most vile 40 minutes. The way he twisted Scripture and the way he left things out and the way he went on, and I was thankful that Sean McDowell, who's Josh McDowell's son, was there to just challenge him at every point and say, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. Either you're very, very uh, confused or you're twisting this. But there are people out there who buy into what this man is peddling. And it's so inconsistent with what we know. So, are we ready to challenge when, when it comes our way? So, he uses yet in like manner these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So, there, he's connecting with the examples, and he says, when he says following their dreams here, think of this, what I mentioned earlier, following the, their own whims, following their own heart, just kind of doing what they think is good and right and necessary. But he says in so doing that, they defile their flesh. This is another reference to immorality. So he's, he's proliferating this idea that they are immoral, they defile their flesh, and then he says, and they reject authority. Now, that word there for authority in the Greek Testament is interesting. It's the normal word you would see in authority of one of the most common ones would be a word called exousia. It's not the word you get there. The word you get there is a Greek word that's built off the same word as kurios, Lord. And so what Jude is saying here 
is they don't just reject the local government. They don't just reject whomever. They're rejecting the Lord's authority. And they're rejecting the Lord's authority precisely because they're following their own hearts. They've set themselves in the center of all. And so now it's not just a matter of these guys are kind of sleazy, although they are. It's now they have stepped outside the bounds of real authority and are rejecting the Lord. These teachers who are claiming to be teachers of truth. And we have another issue here. You're going to hear me say it a few more times. They reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, who are those glorious ones? There, obviously, there's a, a debate. There's some schools of thought. Some people think that he's talking about just the angelic host, that because he calls them the glorious ones, clearly he has the angelic host in view. And some people think that he's talking about the demonic host. And the reason they think that is because the very next verse, literally in Greek, even, even and, and, and there's, no, there's no period either, it's just one fluid sentence, they, and, and blaspheme the glorious ones, and even the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Once you take those two verses together and they go together, you get a, you get a picture of what Jude is talking about. It's not the angelic host in heaven, but the demonic host who is allied with Satan. Now, why in the world would they be kind of charged for slandering or blaspheming demons? Because he's reminding us of something, that even though we have victory in Christ, there is a power at work in wickedness. And it's a power that even we have to be cognizant of and not be flippant about. You remember the guys who were driving out demons in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches? And the demons said, Paul, or Jesus we know, and Paul we know. We don't know who you are. And the demons overpowered them. That story needs to sit in the back of our minds because if you've ever been in church services where, like when I was a kid, they, my dad took me to some church and we sang all these funny songs in kids' church about, you know, we're going to stomp on the devil's nose and we're going to make the devil sit on attack. It's just, it's silly. And I'm sorry, I'm embarrassed now I'm even telling you this um, because I think I probably sang it with vigor in those days. Um, I mean, stomping as hard as I could, like, get him. But those songs, <laughs> those songs are so misguided because we can't be flippant about the power of darkness at work in the world. The power of light is victorious and the darkness cannot overcome it. However, these people were being flippant. They were speaking flippantly. And so he gives them this story, which is also another issue. <laughs> the story that he gives, some have speculated, some of the older church fathers have speculated that it comes from this thing called the Assumption of Moses, an ancient story that the early church fathers were aware of. We are aware that that did exist, but whatever portion this came out of, if this came out of it, doesn't exist anymore. It's lost to us. So is it from the assumption of Moses? I have no idea, and neither does anybody else, really. So when we look at this story, the question is, okay, well, that's, ooh, what do we do with that? Well, whatever it is, whatever tradition it comes from, it was a tradition known to Jude and known to his readers. They knew it. And he's taking a principle out of this story to communicate a point. And the point is very poignant for us. It's good. 
What did Michael do when he was going to contend with the devil? Now remember, Michael is an archangel. Angel Daniel called him a prince, which we understood angel. He's also kind of in reference as one of the watchers in Jewish tradition. So he's a powerful creature. But the point that Jude is making is that even this creature of power rooted himself in the authority of the Lord, not himself. In other words, Michael didn't reject authority. Michael handed these, this uh, creature over Satan to be judged by God. So it's one thing to say, hey, we need to uh, have a healthy respect for the powers of darkness, but we yield that over to God and we entrust that to the Lord. And quite another to say, those old demons are stupid. Let's just stomp on them. You know, that, that kind of nonsense that gains traction because people don't stop to think about whether or not that's a really good idea to communicate. Because I was a kid and I could, I could sing that song from begin to finish right now, but I won't. Um, so these false teachers, they're speaking unguardedly about heavenly beings and not rooting themselves in the Lord's authority. And beloved, here's, here's what I want to communicate to you. You've heard me now mention twice. We're not sure where this came from. We're not sure where that came from. But it has landed in Scripture. And I'm going to say what I said to you. Truth is God's truth. And God takes truth and by means of the Holy Spirit through human writers and inserts it in His Word, we can trust it. Because if you knew the amount of um, manuscripts that exist in the world of the Bible and how consistent it is, through thousands of years, it is magnificent. It is more sure than the fact that Alexander the Great lived. It is more sure than Julius Caesar actually lived. It is more sure than Homer's Odyssey. It is more sure than many of the things that we would just, of course that's right and true. I've read it. I've read the history. The Word of God is more sure, so have confidence in it. And don't let that be shaken because people want to shake. When they, shake the authority, when they shake the authority, then they begin to shake the foundation. And so we want the authority to remain firm. So he says of them after this story, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Well, they're showing their ignorance through flippancy, and they live like animals. That's kind of what he's getting at here, it's very instinctively, not thoughtfully, not guardedly, not under the authority, but instinctively like animals. So think of basic instincts, and think again, he's making allusions to their immorality, and what he says here is quite plain. Those who live that way will be destroyed, period. Those who teach it will be destroyed. Those who call it good and embrace it, will be destroyed. I mean, there's, there, he doesn't sugarcoat it. They are destroyed, period. And so then he goes one step further. He pronounces a woe to them. You remember Jesus did this to the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. He says, woe to them. For they walked the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Again, threes, Old Testament things. And he binds these three together, and it's very intentional. He pulls them together for a reason. Cain's error, or Cain's, what Cain did to Abel, you remember he murdered his brother. His brother, he was jealous. His brother had a, had a, had a better sacrifice. 
And what we need to read or think about that story is Cain wanted what Abel had. He envied, he coveted, and so he killed. Balaam was greedy, he coveted. He ultimately led or tried to lead the Israelites into gross error and did to some degree because he was greedy, lusting, coveting the wealth of Moab. He was going to get all this money. Korah rebelled and led people to rebel. Greedy for power and freedom and to do as he wills and not be subservient to the precepts of God. And all these people did these things, rejected the Lord's authority, gave themselves over to their own desires, and they perished. Balaam, Cain, and Korah are not pillars in the Old Testament. They're bywords. When you hear Cain or Balaam, you think bad. When we hear Korah, we think, yeah, not good. They were swallowed up by the earth. So by, by associating these teachers with these things here, he's helping us see with clarity the truth of the matter. And then he goes on. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees and laid on them, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. By calling them hidden reefs, he's calling them a, a true danger. They're dangerous. They're dangerous. They shipwreck lives. They kill. By calling them waterless clouds and fruitless trees, they're empty. They can't deliver. They're going to make grand promises. And they're going to tell you all these grand truths. We see this in the prophets of old, the false prophets who say, yes, surely go up. The Lord is with you. And then the army gets destroyed because they're waterless clouds, they're fruitless trees, completely empty. They boldly are participating in what the love feasts were probably their gatherings for worship back then. That's what they called them and where, and the reason they probably had a meal together and they had the Lord's Supper together. And he says, they are openly sharing your table without shame, taking the Lord's Supper without discerning the body of Christ. They're wicked. They're terrible. They live in open sin. When he calls them, the, tr the tree imagery is very graphic when he says, a fruitless tree in late autumn, which means the tree is not producing twice dead and uprooted. Now, why proliferate there? If, an uprooted, if you uproot a tree, it's dead, but cause it twice dead. And I'm convinced it's making an allusion to they're going to die, and then they're going to die the second death that Revelation talks about. In other words, he's alluding to their judgment. They will die, and then they will die again and be cast into the lake of fire with all that is wicked. He rounds out this paragraph by honing in on the judgment and the teachers one more time. It was also these. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You might notice he used the word ungodly there a lot. Now we have another issue. This quote comes from First Enoch, an apocryphal book that was written 
probably, I don't know, maybe around 200, 300 B.C., somewhere in there, and it is not canon. It is outside the canon. Brad, how can he quote that here if it's outside the canon? Well, as he's drawing on this Jewish tradition, he sees a concept in there that the judgment of God, whoever wrote that book of First Enoch, spoke truly about the judgment of God and how it comes. And when you read the book of Revelation, you see that statement, wherever it comes from, does line up with what we have in the book of Revelation. But people get stumped by this word prophesied here. They assume it means it always takes on a technical definition, and it doesn't always. In Titus chapter 1, verse 12, Paul uses the word prophet to describe one of the poets of Crete who said of the Cretans that they're all liars. Why does Paul use the word prophet there? Because he's using it in a way that suggests that what the poet said is true, and so that the poet has spoken truly. And so when we look at Jude, I think Jude is using this word in a very similar way of even Enoch, or the writer of First Enoch spoke truly when he said, and then he gives the quote, that God is coming to execute judgment on the ungodly, because God is indeed coming to execute judgment on the ungodly. So he's using a story, a familiar story, to buttress his point. Now, my words are not inspired at all, ever. But it is kind of similar when I use the Lord of the Rings to buttress my point, because it's a story it's a good story. It's a wholesome story. It's a, in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a true story, even though I know it's fiction. I, I, I promise I know. But there are things in there that can help me drive a point home, and that will connect with you. Well, at least most of you. Some of you is probably lost on, and I'm sorry about that. But uh, there's one way to fix that problem. Um, what's this point in all this? The point is that the judgment of God is coming and he proliferates. These teachers now, he's just calling them what they are. They're ungodly. They're not true. They're not under the Lord's authority. They don't, they don't hold to the Lord's code of morality. They don't keep to what they know is right and good and beautiful. They deviate. They're ungodly. I love how we move from these men have slipped in among you to they're ungodly and they're going to be judged. And he takes one more time to say they are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Literally, they're uh, marveling, like you're marveling or you're flattering someone to swindle them, to swindle them. Sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel to me, where you use flattering language to swindle money. Again, nothing new under the sun. Motivated by greed, they lie. What is the sum of all this? A lot of information here, lots of hard stuff. Well, the sum of this is quite simple. The severe judgment of the Lord will have the last word. In our culture, it's seen as morbid or perhaps even unloving to dwell on the judgment of God. People don't, people don't want to hear about judgment. I was a pastor in Keystone Heights, Florida for about six years, and I had a man leave our church, and I was only going through the Gospel of John at the time, um, which is a great book, a loving book. And he said, 
when I come to church, I want to leave here feeling good about myself, and you make me feel guilty. And I said, well, I'm not making you feel guilty. And just let it hang there. And um, he never came back, ever. Um, it was interesting. It was an interesting experience. I was a young pastor, and I really didn't know how to respond, but I, I wasn't going to tell him, I'm not the one making you feel guilty. You need to talk to the Lord about that one. But, we, but when it comes to God's judgment or God's wrath, we just want to, oh, you know, we kind of want to, but we've got we to just dive into it because the Bible is f- full of it. And not to, so that we can beat each other over the head, but so that we can be sober ourselves and we can warn the world. Because these 12 verses that we just went over, they, bring out, they focus on the judgment of God precisely because the world needs to understand what awaits her. But we've got to keep in mind, as I've already said, Jude wasn't addressing what was going on on Monday and Tuesday. He was talking about what was happening on Sunday. This is not, the, I mean, when you read this, it's easy for us to think, yeah, man, the world is awful, and it is. But he was speaking to the church. So what that tells us, what that tells me, is we have to guard our hearts. And since professing Christians aren't above gross error, we have to constantly be examining ourselves and our lives to see if we are living by the truth. Jude quoted Scripture and he quoted tradition, and his point was clear. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. What we do, how we live, what we believe matters. It matters greatly. And so, beloved of God, why do we contend for the truth? Because it's precious. Because if we stray just a little, it's gone. And may we always be people who cling to and stand for and stand with the truth. Please please pray with me. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning and its its truth. (laughs) Yes, judgment is hard. Your wrath is sobering. But may we all May we all be honest with ourselves and with those around us about its certainty so that those who are lost can be found, so that those who are dead can be given new life. And thank you that you've done that for us, God. For those who believe in you this morning, you have raised us up. You have found us. And may that be so precious to us that we want to see that happen in other people and that we want to see the precepts of your word guarded because they are precious and they mean the world. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.